For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Last week, we heard from Emily Penn about X-Expedition, the all-women around-the-world sailing voyage focused on ocean plastic. And this week's interview is with one of her crew, who just so happens to also be the co-founder of Fashion Revolution. We've heard from Ursula de Castro on the show before, episode 69, if you want to revisit, and also Fashion Revolution's global policy director, Sarah Ditty. She was in episode 37. So it was only a matter of time before we heard from Carrie, but this was the perfect opportunity because, of course, there is a fashion connection to ocean plastic. Yes, I'm talking about microfibers, and we're going to unpack all of that. We'll also reveal Fashion Revolution's next hashtag, which goes along with who made my clothes, and it is what's in my clothes. So that's going to be a big focus of this year's Fashion Revolution Week, which kicks off on April the 20th. Lots of it's going to be online, isn't it? I mean, obviously, these are bizarre times in the world, but wardrobe crisis is still with you, hopefully bringing you some comfort and inspiration. If any listeners are in lockdown or just feeling isolated or freaked out, I do hope that these weekly appointments, these conversations bring you some joy. This interview is recorded actually in Carrie's living room in February and it really feels like you're there with us. Next week's show is a special one too. I recorded it today actually. It's with Greenpeace's CEO in this region. He is David Ritter and it's all about connection, optimism and the importance of love in the time of coronavirus. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening, and please do keep sharing about the show. Now, let's hear from Carrie. Carrie, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. How can I say welcome? When we're in your house, you should be welcoming me. Do you want to start by describing where we are? Well, welcome, Claire, to Rudyard. We're in Rudyard in Staffordshire, which is near to Leek, an amazing town with an incredibly fascinating textile heritage. And we're right at the edge of the Peak District and in it's a very so beautiful part of England. We went for a walk around the lake before. We did, yes. I mean, it's, it's my daily walk and it is such an incredibly beautiful spot. We are cosied up on a winter's afternoon with a jug of daffodils on the table and... A bunch of books. Could you tell us what those books are? We've got a selection of different books here. One of them is Visual Voyages, which is about images of Latin American nature from Columbus to Darwin. I mean, something that I didn't know before. They actually had botanical gardens in Latin America before the the Spanish arrived there. Amazing. We've got a book on the Galapagos about preserving Darwin's legacy. And then a really fascinating book I'm hoping I've got space for when when I pack for my forthcoming voyage called Werner's Nomenclature of Colours, which was actually a book which Darwin took with him on his voyage to learn what colours he was going to use to identify the different sort of animals and plant species that he saw in the the Galapagos and it's fascinating it's got all of these different colours and blues and greens and sort of just and these wonderful descriptions the different descriptions yeah, yeah. of lovely. the different hints and just those slight differences in, in tone between one blue and another one and you know this is the colour of this particular duck's back uh, yes now you've given it away because you mentioned your upcoming voyage um <laughs> listeners will know you as one of the co-founders of fashion revolution and maybe also as a designer of patch but maybe they don't know that you're also a bit of a sailor 
and you're about to embark on this crackers voyage. Tell us about it. This amazing voyage and this really groundbreaking voyage as well. I mean, this is, is research into plastic pollution, microplastic pollution in the oceans, which hasn't been done before. It will be the first ever global data set of microplastic pollution. So using the same methodology all around the world. So there will be 300 women travelling around the world for two years up into the Arctic as well, looking at the distribution of plastics and microplastics in the surface of the ocean, in the water column and in the sediment as well. I will be departing from the Galapagos Islands and sailing around 2,000 miles down to Easter Island and actually only about 20 yachts a year visit Easter Island so it's not a place that many people sail to. That's going to be amazing. <laughs> that particular leg is going to take you around 20 days is that right? Yes that's And right. how many women will be on the boat? I think there's about 10 crew and then there are three permanent crew on the boat. And we also have Winnie Cotton jones from the University of Plymouth, who is the science lead for X Expedition. And I'm very excited that she's actually going to be on our leg. I think we're going to have a very special time doing the science on board. Carrie, you know I was going to ask you how you prepare for this trip, but what I really want to know is how you pack. Because before I was saying, how do you prepare mentally to go on a trip like this? What do you have to do? But then it was like, hang on a minute, what are you taking with you? You want to take hardback books. <laughs> I know when I have the Oxford Book of the Sea, which is about two inches thick and weighs a ton. That you're actually words, going to I, take. I really feel like I am going to take because it will keep me going and the crew going. And I've somehow got this idea we might be able to read to each other, but that there might not be. But there are packing restrictions due to space. So how much space have you been allocated and what are you actually going to have to take with you? The space on the boat that we've been allocated is 50 centimetres by 40 centimetres by 20 centimetres, which is really, really, really teeny. So you've got your Oxford Book of the Sea and one jumper. And I have, I mean, literally about 750 grams of loose leaf tea because I can't survive without really good quality Earl Grey. Three different types. Some greens, really good green tea or loose leaf tea in my tea bowl. So again, that's taking up probably 20% of my, my rucksack. You're actually quite an eccentric person, Carrie Summers. <laughs> when you're in your early 20s, you lived on boats and learned to sail. Tell us about that. Yes, I mean, I, I ended up in sailing very much by accident, like most things in my life. And I was actually just going down to the harbour in Southampton looking for a cheap place to live as a student because I'd heard that for £15 a month you could get a cabin on a sewage barge in the marina. So I was going down to talk to some people who had one of these cabins and ended up getting roped into putting up the mainsail on Velshida, this beautiful J-class yacht built over 100 years ago with the tallest single mast in the world a stunning boat and then I was invited to go out and sail the next day and where was this so this is where at university in Southampton and then there was a fight and half the crew left and they called me the next day saying please can you come out and and sail with us again and I ended up sailing for the rest of the summer part of the next summer and then I jumped on to TS Astrid a square rigger who was also in the harbour and I did the tall ships race 
And then after I did my master's in Native American studies, I got a job in the Caribbean and I sailed in the Caribbean for a year and sailed across the Atlantic, which took two months in a really ropey topsail schooner, which probably shouldn't have been at sea. I never really properly learnt how to sail because most of the boats I worked on were 120, 140 foot long and you knew parts of the boat and square riggers are actually quite different to Latin sails, which are the sort of front to back sails of a normal yacht or dinghy and so I've been doing a little bit of sailing you know fortunately in Rudyard we have a beautiful lake and so I've been doing a little bit of sailing over the summer to try to get to grips with how everything works again. Are you nervous about going on this voyage because it is a long I mean 20 days at sea in conditions that you don't know what they're going to be like are you nervous or do you reckon you got it? I'm not nervous at all about the sailing because I was in some really significant storms crossing the Atlantic. I mean, the boat we sailed in, it was made from old U-boat. The hull was made from old U-boats. And so we felt pretty safe, but we had ships that went down within radio distance of us. And we were in awful storms but my strategy was always to put on either some loud opera music or prints in the wheelhouse blast it out and actually really enjoy the storms and on the square riggers I was always the person who volunteered to go up to the top of the mast and fill the upper to gallants I loved it I loved you're like an adrenaline junkie well also you can't do anything you're in the middle of the ocean what's the point of being scared you may as well enjoy it the Galapagos are like a bucket list place for I think many listeners and certainly for me it's not somewhere I've ever been and maybe and presumably will never go you go through a David Attenborough natural history series don't you you go through the pages of a book but they're famous for wildlife for giant tortoises Um, what else do we think of when we think of Galapagos Darwin Darwin yes now I did a bit of research before we sat down together and Darwin went there in 1835. He spent five weeks there, but he was on this five-year odyssey looking at and collecting plant and animal samples and species down the coast of South America. But it was in the Galapagos Islands that he figured out his crucial insights into how species evolve, and that became the basis of his famous book, The Origins of the Species. Now, I asked you before, have you been mugging up on Darwin biographies or reading beyond these picture books deeply into his work and you said to me that no you'd actually been reading a biography of another scientist whom I'd never heard of. Yes I've been reading the biography of Alexander von Humboldt who was actually one of the main inspirations for Darwin. I mean Darwin actually took um, Humboldt's book and some of his writings traveling with him he he used to read out quotes from Humboldt. Humboldt and this guy's an explorer this guy's an explorer I think he's got more species and different things named after him than anyone I mean we've heard of the Humboldt penguin the Humboldt current and Humboldt was in Latin America around 200 years ago and it's really interesting because Humboldt observed at the time how the earth was being exploited I mean he says that the soil was being exploited like a mine and that the earth seemed exhausted and why was this this was because of the desire of the world for colorful clothes which was bringing poverty to the earth and to the local population Humboldt knew this 200 years ago I mean it's really astonishing that we know what have we learned in the interim a lot of this was because of the natural dyes which were being sourced so um, indigos yes indigo I think it's absolutely extraordinary to learn that from you, that even then he could see that we were pushing nature beyond its boundaries. And yet now, I mean, that's all we see, isn't it? It is. And I think the other thing that's really interesting about Humboldt 
is that when you look at his scientific method, it incorporates art history and poetry and politics. And since then, we've just had ever narrowing areas of scientific expertise. And I think it's so important that we rediscover multidisciplinary methods. And I think that's part of the reason I'm so excited about X Expedition is that we do have this multidisciplinary crew on board. And it seems like now we're really drawing a demarcation line between um, science and the arts, the subjective and the objective. And we have to start to reconnect the two because I believe that we only really protect what we love. So we have to start to to bring science closer to our, our emotions so we bring that connection back again. You also introduced me to a concept which is outside of science, which is about indigenous relations to land and a completely different worldview about how we might decode our relation to nature. In 2008, Ecuador became the first country to legally recognise the rights of nature. That's right. I mean, Ecuador recognised the rights of nature and then a few years later, Bolivia adopted the law of the rights of Mother Earth as well. So legally? Legally, this means that people can sue on behalf of the ecosystems. And this is all part of the Andean concept of sumac causae, which is, is good living. It's very different to our idea of good living. It's about good living. It's not living any better than others. It's about living... And it's not about sort of accumulation of material wealth. It's about living well together in harmony with nature and with mutual support. And actually, it all comes back to INI. It's about reciprocity and it's about balance. And this is now enshrined in the constitutions of certainly of Ecuador and Bolivia. So this word, how do you spell it? It's A-Y-N-I. And INI means both reciprocity and balance. And the idea of balance isn't something static. It's not like having scales where things are perfectly balanced. It's about the idea of a continual exchange which maintains that equilibrium. So to maintain balance, to maintain balance with nature, we have to be continually giving and receiving, giving and receiving. And INI is based on issues like respect, justice, solidarity, and it was just a constant accompaniment to life in the Andes. And still, indeed, it still is. You know, if you're having a glass of, of chicha, you will put a little bit on, on the floor Which to, is what? to patch your mama. Chicha is a, a fermented maize beer. But, you know, you still do. You, see, you still see people putting a little splash on the floor to patch your mama before they, they have a drink. So, you know, life itself... Who is patch your mama? Patch your mama is Mother Earth. So what, this idea that in order to enjoy the fruits of Mother Earth, you need to give some back? Is that what that means? Like, why would you put it on the floor? Is it like a gift to the gods? What does it mean? It's the idea that by doing that, you are part of that that equilibrium, that balance. And that needs to be actually renewed every single day. It's not something static every day. You have to work to create that balance. And this actually does involve some sacrifice as well. I mean, yes, that might be giving away, you know, a few centimetres of your glass of of chicha. But it's the idea that it moves people beyond self-interest. INI is about looking at the collective good rather than the individual good as well. Is it also just about being much more in tune with and tapped into nature? I mean, we were talking before about how farmers understand just intuitively and also through experience and passed on wisdom, just how to respect nature and how to keep sustaining life on the land. I mean, that's part of it, right? Yes. And also how to to look at the signs of nature, you know, that, that whole sort of 
semiotics which we seem to have lost in terms of like, well, yeah. how do you tell? What are the signs of, of nature, the signs of nature in the landscape? I was actually reading last night about eco-semiotics and I think it's really interesting. We've lost almost that connection of looking for the signs in the landscape. And, and these farmers in the Andes, that's what they do every day. There's that observation and they know if the rains are going to come. They know if it's going to be a drier summer by looking at the signs in the land. I feel like just that kind of very, very intuitive way of reacting to whether it's beauty or ugliness doesn't really matter just what's going on in the natural world it's all there within us it's just that we're so locked into our kind of little sealed tech bubbles that we're disconnected yep and that's what I love so much about sailing and I still remember now I almost want to go back and read the journal I wrote 30 years ago sailing across the Atlantic because it focuses you you know every day you're looking at the sea and you notice the difference in the sea you notice the slight differences the phosphorescence the changing colours and that's all you're focused on is is the sea and the wind and the signs around you and if you're at sea for that long it does make you very much more in tune with the elements and that is something that we you know we do lose these days with like you said all of the tech around us i've also been thinking about how disconnection is what fuels our fast fashion crisis and also obviously the way that we're treating the natural world it's what helps to fuel the climate crisis and just our carelessness maybe with nature i think it's to do with also how we pollute with plastic but i think there are some parallels there with with fashion don't you like that disconnection thing that we always talk about, like if you could, you use the term transparency, like if you can see more and if you can relate more to what the stories are behind things, then you will care for them more. Yes, and I think it's really interesting that so many people, you know, a lot of people don't realise that polyester is plastic and I think it's you know we work within our little eco bubble and we assume that everybody knows this we were discussing it earlier whereas actually we did a a post on fashion revolution recently about polyester is plastic it's amazing how many people don't know and I actually talked to somebody recently who's you know probably about 70 years old and you would imagine this is somebody who's been you know brought up knowing much more about textiles particularly coming from a textile town like Leek and she was like Really? I had no idea that polyester was made from plastic. And then a week later, there was an article in the Daily Mail about how all of our Christmas jumpers are made from plastic. And she was like, I never would have known this unless I talked to you the week before. I had no idea that jumpers were made from plastic. And I think it's really dangerous to assume that there is a greater knowledge than there actually is because I think actually generally the level of knowledge is really quite poor. I passed some people recently who were just discussing they'd just heard about turtles getting caught up in plastic bags in the ocean and I'm like gosh this was something that we knew 10 years ago. We're assuming people have moved on from turtles and plastic bags which was probably the first wake-up call to plastics in the oceans and that that now they know about microfibers. I really don't think that's true. I'd like to know what you're hearing from brands on that. Brands know, we know that they know, but you were saying to me before that they're not acting. Yes, very few brands are actually acting to reduce certainly virgin plastics as part of our fashion transparency index, which we publish every year. We included 200 brands in the 2019 index and actually only 15% of those brands had any measurable time-bound targets to reduce Virgin plastics, that's both within their packaging and the materials they use to make their clothing. And then we also see a real disconnect between 
you know, brands saying they're going to do something and what they're actually doing. So we have 43% of brands who are publishing a sustainable material strategy, but actually only 29% of them who are disclosing the percentage of their products which are made from more sustainable materials. So how do we know? How do we know brands are actually putting their vision, their mission, that, that drive to be more sustainable? How do we know that they're actually acting on that? We really need to see brands reporting more concretely on the measures that they're taking and reporting on the progress towards those goals on an annual basis. But do you think just looking particularly at the plastic fibre question, do you think that brands are reluctant to even enter the conversation because we know that most clothes are made from polyester and it's just such a big ask for them to reduce that? It is. I mean, it's so difficult. It's around 63% of our clothing, which is made from polyester or from synthetic fibres of polyester, acrylic, nylon. And it's really difficult because, yes, we can push brands to use recycled polyester. It's still polyester. But it's still polyester. And yes, it might have between, it's it's sort of between about 30 and 50% less carbon impacts we're not using the fossil fuels but it still has an impact and at the same time you know what about the microfibers we don't know there's no research which has been carried out on the difference between recycled polyester and new polyester so what about the microfiber shedding we really don't know whether there's any difference but we can presume that the impact would be comparable and 34.8 percent of all of the microplastics in the sea come from the fashion and textiles industry is that right yeah, 34.8% is the most reliable statistic. So something like a third of ocean plastic yep. pollution actually comes from our actually clothes, comes from or, our clothes from or from textiles. So yes. carpets. Yes. And that's phenomenal, isn't it? It's phenomenal. And a lot of that is through, you know, the washing phase. It's through the use phase. It's through, you know, our washing machines not having adequate filters. It's through the filtration plants. I was reading a scientific paper yesterday and they were saying that, you know, the, the amount of textile fibres that we see down water of treatment plants it's significantly higher so we know that there's textile fibers which are escaping from the water treatment plants as well in your dealings with brands through fashion revolution i mean you are constantly talking to different stakeholders across supply chains obviously ngos but also people from brands are you finding a reluctance from brands to engage on this is it too hard basket stuff particularly the microfibers thing I think the progressive brands certainly are starting to to work towards researching, which will then lead to innovation. I mean, starting to starting work towards. To, but I, I guess it's early. I mean, we haven't known that this is an issue mm. for long. And, you know, in a way, it's like, how, how do we solve the problem? I mean, yes, we can get rid of the polyester and the acrylic and the nylon materials, but that's not going to happen overnight. Is there a way to reduce microfiber shedding? Actually, in this year's Fashion Transparency Index, which will cover 250 brands, we are looking in one of the questions about whether brands are disclosing what they're doing about microfibres and shedding. So are they publishing the shed rates of their garments? Are they disclosing whether they have any partnerships with research institutions or are they working on any kind of an innovation to any innovations to reduce the microfibre shedding from their garments? Unfortunately, we're always talking in sort of hypothetic circumstances because we just don't have the science yet we really don't know but there is some research to suggest or there are innovations happening where we can talk about potentially tighter weaves shedding less we know for example from dr mark brown's research that polar fleeces shed much much more than the fine weave of a men's business shirt 
But I mean, I think there is tech innovation happening around whether or not, for example, with swimwear nylons, different weaves can result in lower shedding. But that, like you say, who knows? As a customer, people often ask me, what can I do? Oh, no, I'm terrified about this. I don't want to be part of this cause of ocean plastic pollution from my clothes. What can I do? But our answer has to be, we don't know. Well, I think, you know, there's certain other things we can do if we have got clothing which is made from synthetics we can make sure we get a guppy bag or a cora ball which will help to reduce potentially I know this is what I've been saying to everyone and then Mark Brown said to me there is no research to actually prove that that's the case yet okay yep you so know, again, it's like we hope for the best. We, we hope and we do for the we best. Can. I mean, we can wash our clothing less. I think we often wash our clothing much too much, and then it's been proven that no, we the don't. Best... We were saying we never wash. Well, our no, I'm, I'm really bad at washing my my clothes. I very rarely wash most of my clothes. But um, also, if we do wash, we need to be washing on low temperatures on a short cycle. I mean, actually, a 20 degrees 30 minute cycle is proven to be the best in terms of reducing microfiber shedding. Really, I didn't know yes, that. And that's recent research. Okay, what's your motivation in going on this voyage of discovery, if you like? Um, Obviously, you're part of a team of citizen scientists, for the most part, that are collecting this data, but what do you want to get out of it? I want to show people, the public, the people buying clothing, and I want to show the brands the impact of our clothing on the oceans, because when we see, we understand, and when we understand, we can act on it and I think it's really important to show the pictures to show the microfiber so people can understand that in every trawl in every trawl we bring up that you know maybe a third of this microplastics are coming from our clothing and then to talk to brands and retailers when I get back about the data about our findings on board so that they actually know where best to act because there are brands there are more progressive brands who want to act but they can't do everything at the same time so they need to know where best to put their resources and hopefully once we have some initial data back about what kinds of polymers are we finding you know do we find more you know polyester acrylic nylon are we finding more of a certain kind of polymer in the surface level or in the water column or in the sediment you know where is it collecting are there different areas geographically where we're finding more of certain types of polymers it will help us know where better to act and we can't really you know we need to be able to measure and monitor we need these facts before we can start to work out how and where to use our resources to clean up the problem on land because we can't clean up microplastics and microfibers in the ocean they they are out there and it's a really concerning scenario i asked you before whether you felt daunted about going on a sailing voyage that might for example be rough and your answer was no love it i want to climb up to the to the highest part of my old sailing boat and be more scared but do you feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of the plastics problem because i speaking for myself i do When I look more deeply into it, I feel more freaked out because you think now you've just told me something I didn't know that a third of all ocean plastic pollution could be down to microfibers. I mean, it's just such a wicked problem, isn't it? It is so wicked. And we also know that as plastics and microplastics break down, as they degrade, they give off more and more greenhouse gas emissions. And we're looking at, you know, a faux fur coat and an estimated 1,000 years to break down in landfill, to break apart. You know, that's a really concerning Mm. scenario. So, you know, there's different issues which are affecting climate change, which are potentially affecting our our health and the chemicals in, in the clothing. And so it can seem daunting, but I have to be, you know, 
I, I am an optimist. I wouldn't have done anything that I have done in my life without being optimistic that I can bring about change, whether that's on a small scale or on a larger scale. I do feel like we, we can tackle this solution. It's not going to be easy. But we can also all make those individual changes. I really believe that we can do things on big scales, but also all of us individually. Every choice matters. Every decision matters in terms of, of working towards a more sustainable future. Carrie, let's take you back to how you got into the fashion space in the first place, but also to talk about your connection with Ecuador. Well, I went out to Ecuador for the first time as part of my Master's in Native American Studies, and I was looking at textile production. How much had it changed since pre-colonial times? What sort of methods were they using? Why textiles? I don't know why. I guess I've always loved textiles. I was really fascinated in natural dyes and colours. So that was really my main interest and wanted to go and see the people. And, you know, at the time, people in Ecuador were still using cochineal and walnut dye and indigo. Sadly, not much any anymore. People were still weaving on backstrap looms and you know, yeah. spinning and using teasels to card the wool. You know, back in 1990, it was all being done on a very manual basis things changed very rapidly after that so I wrote my thesis on that and then after going sailing I came back from sailing a year later in the April and I had my PhD in natural dyes and the symbolism of colour in the Andes ahead of me starting in the sort of September October so I had these months ahead of me and I'd met two cooperatives when I'd been in Ecuador and they'd both had arson attacks, experienced arson attacks, because forming a cooperative posed such a threat to mostly to the middlemen who were controlling the wool trade. And I saw it blatantly in front of me, those with the weighing scales, you know, an international symbol of justice. And I saw them being loaded up. It was I remember it so clearly about six o'clock one Saturday morning. I went with the producers to buy their wool and they spoke Quechua, they or Quechua where they didn't have a great knowledge of Spanish. And I just saw the wool on one side of the scales and then they were being charged a price which just bore no resemblance to the price per kilo and they were at the mercy of the middlemen when it came to buying the raw materials and then they had to sell their knitwear back to the middlemen for really low prices at the end of the day and so they were being really exploited the whole way along the process and I naively thought that I could do something about it at least in my summer holidays. My idea was to go back and I produced a series of knitwear patterns. So I had hand-fired raku buttons. I produced the designs based on some cave art from, from the area. I used natural dyes. I thought, well, if I can bring their knitwear over to the UK to try and sell it at some events and festivals, it will give them some money, it will help them, and it will give me something to do in the time before my PhD starts. So, so that was the start of it. And it sold incredibly well. And within six weeks, I sold out and had to ask them to to make some more jumpers. But was it really a fashion business by accident? Did you ever imagine you, yourself having a career in fashion? I was definitely focused on a career in academia. I mean, I, I was convinced I was going to go back and, and to my PhD. But really, by the time it got September, I could see the difference that it was making to the lives of these men and women and their families. People were sending their children to school for the first time because they could afford the matriculation fee. And I knew that I couldn't do something as selfish as go and study for my PhD. PhD when I knew that I could you know make a, a difference and I think also there was there was that idea that you know fashion 
can be done in a better way. Clothing can be made in a better way. And and I call my business Patricuti, which means world upside down. But it also means the start of a new era. In 1992, when I founded Patricuti, was 500 years since Columbus first arrived in the Americas. Mm -hmm. And the indigenous people were starting to say, well, look, we want to reassert our identity. We want to talk about, you know, about our worldview. We've been dominated for too long. We want to, to assert our identity as indigenous people. We want this to be the start of a new era with more respect for us. And so it seemed like a really appropriate word to give my new business. And the idea was to give more benefits to the people on that side of the world. I've always just believed that we can all make a difference. And I think part of it also was reading Anita Roddick's biography, actually. She was hugely inspiring. And if I hadn't sat down and read her biography, I probably wouldn't have started Patrick Cootie. But I thought, well, if one woman can make such a difference in the beauty industry with no experience at all, what's to stop me from doing the same thing? It was risky, I think looking at those fair trade principles as well. Fair trade at the time was some pretty bad Nicaraguan coffee. I think I was probably the first person who put the words fair trade and fashion together because fair trade as a concept was, you know, it was really in its infancy and certainly not applying to to clothing or fashion. I'm glad you moved on to fair trade because I wanted to ask you at what point did you formalise what you were doing around the fair trade principles and how did that kind of evolve for you and for Pachacuti? It was there at the outset, really. I mean, the fair trade principles may be not as much because I'm not sure that they were even formalised at the time. The WFTO fair trade principles, I believe, came quite a bit afterwards. But I knew about the concept of fair trade and that necessity of not just paying a fair price, but having those long term relationships. I was going to say define it. Yes. Um, you know, the, the importance of, of, of gender equality, the importance of, of environmental conservation. You know, we knew from talking to our weavers that, that actually the most important thing for them was the, the long term trade, the regular trade with um, as, so as relationships much as that the continue. Price, the relationships, the capacity building, actually training, training them up so that they could get more added value as well and that's why unlike most Panama hat brands we get all of our blocking and production and sewing and as much as possible done in Ecuador by the women's groups and women's associations because we want them to receive the added value rather than that all being done in the UK in Italy or in Southeast Asia. Briefly tell us what Pachacuti does now you mentioned the hats. Yes, I mean, Pachacuti became very well known for our Panama hats. And but they're made in Ecuador. How does they're, that work? They're, made in, they're made in Ecuador. And I've never understood that. It's because it's a Panama, was, no, Panama was the main trading route. So the hats were traded through Panama, through the Panama Canal. And then the hats were also shown at, at the Great Exhibition in Paris and were mislabeled there as hats from Panama. Get out. So it's yes. I mean, it's but it's the been beauty something which, of these hats is in the hand weaving. It's in the hand weaving, and I mean, some of the hats are so incredibly fine. I mean, some of the hats that we make that that we sell take you know weeks, if not months, to produce. And one of the most exciting projects, and we've, we've worked on a lot of projects. We were, we piloted two of the fair trade certifications. So Patricuti was the first company in the world to be fair trade certified by the World Fair Trade Organization, which is fantastic because I thought, you know, a Panama hat, it's such a symbol of colonial rule. And having a fair trade Panama hat just shows that the power can be returned to the hands of the producers. But 
another really important project was the Geofair Trade Project. And we were the only participant in this, which was looking at the, the manufacture of products. The other producers were all looking at commodities. So, you know, vanilla, coffee, different different commodities. And it was about the, the traceability of raw materials. So we mapped the GPS coordinates of each one of our weavers' houses high up in the Andes. Only 45% of them are even accessible by road. We mapped the... Well, how did you get there? We had a researcher for six months um, hiking up into the mountains and measuring the GPS coordinates really? of all of Amazing. the houses. And then we mapped the GPS coordinates of the associations who processed the straw and then each parcel of land in the coastal cloud forest where, where the straw grows as well. So we mapped our supply chains right back to the raw materials and collected 68 different social, economic and environmental indicators over the course of the project annually. So I knew that traceability was important. I knew that transparency was was important. I knew that it could bring visibility to all of the people within the supply chain as well. And what really saddened me for so long was we looked at the transparency page of our website Fashion nobody revolutions. looked at it. No Patrick Hootie, before the Rana Plaza collapsed, nobody looked at our page on transparency. Nobody realised oh, so why you had transparency a page was important. Transparency then. We did. And it was only after Rana Plaza collapsed. I mean, I think my first thoughts were actually really selfish. I was thinking, well, finally people will realise why I've been banging on about transparency for yeah. all of these yeah. years. I had no idea that I was going to have some crazy idea that was going to spawn the world's biggest fashion activism movement. In April 2013, as everybody surely knows, the Rana Plaza of Garment Factory Complex collapsed in Savara outside of Dhaka, Bangladesh. You, at the time, knew your friend Ursula de Castro through um, Aesthetica. You'd obviously, Patrick Kuti had been part of that organisation at London Fashion Week, which had showcased sustainable brands. But you were in the bath. <laughs> I hadn't been thinking about doing anything at all you know other than putting out you know a statement with some of the other people the sort of fair trade pioneers like Safia Mini and we, we put out a statement at the time but I hadn't been thinking about any kind of about Rana Plaza about Rana Plaza yes um, but the idea for fashion revolution hit me in the bath and I always feel like it wasn't really my idea I was just the vehicle through which the idea that's you know that that I did something about it because the name came, Fashion Revolution, the idea of doing something on the anniversary. And it seemed like a good enough idea to get out of my nice warm bath on a Sunday evening and do something about it. So I did. From the very first meeting we had in June 2013, the two key words we had about fashion revolution were positive and inclusive. So we want to we want to provide a platform for everybody who was already doing something, but they were doing something in an isolated way. We want them to be able to use fashion revolution, fashion revolution week, to amplify our voices together. We're great collaborators. We are always coming up with different collaborations with other NGOs. We're working with Stop the traffic at the moment for example on, on a project around um, human trafficking and, and modern slavery within supply chains so we love collaborating we really believe in having a positive voice and I think that's something fresh that we brought in because we weren't activists we weren't campaigners we were new to this seven years on fashion revolution has really expanded to take in so many other areas it began with transparency and social justice you now do so much work as an organisation across the environment, across climate, 
impacts across circular economy, you know, everything. We're going to be launching a new hashtag Fashion Revolution Week this year. What's in my clothes? So we're going to be looking at microfibers. It's good, isn't it? So, you know, looking at the toxic chemicals, because again, that's something else I think we just don't know enough about. What can ordinary people do on this issue? Well, we all have a voice and that voice is incredibly powerful. I was actually told during the first fashion or the first fashion revolution day, as it was, then that for every one person who asked the question, who made my clothes, brands were taking it as representing 10,000 people who thought the same way and couldn't be bothered to do anything about it. That's what I heard from an industry insider, 10,000 people. And we know that if a brand gets a certain number of comments, messages on a certain issue, depending on the size of the brand, that's often between about 50 and 200, it will immediately get escalated up to board level. Because so many people think it, but they don't actually sit so down and write think, the letter but they don't necessarily tweet act or... on it. But those messages are powerful. So write to the brand, ask them who made my clothes. Ask There's, them what is in my clothes. Ask them what's in my clothes. There's posters on our website, so you can download the posters to hold up on social media. There's also an automated system where you can just put in the name of the brand and it automatically sends an email to the brand so you can message them and ask them what they're doing in terms of improving sustainability and transparency and respecting human rights and and the rights of the environment as well. And we can also put pressure on our legislators as well. We have a postcard sent to a policymaker as well to ask them what they are doing to support human rights and environmental protections. Honestly, when you had that idea in the bath, you completely changed the world, didn't you? You really did. I don't think I ever realised it was going to grow in something quite so huge. Now it's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't go away because everything is just fine. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you